Talkers. Welcome to No Prize from God, episode 23. No Prize from God features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. I am your host, Ryan J. Downing, and my guest this episode is one of my best friends in the entire world, Ryan Clark, the first repeat guest returning to No Prize from God. He is the co-founder and frontman of the band Demon Hunter, whom I have had the immense pleasure of managing for the last, uh, since 2004. Those guys are, are, are literally family to me in, in every conceivable fashion other than blood. We even all share a hand tattoo. He is also a Grammy Award nominated graphic designer and illustrator, one half of Invisible Creature, based in Washington State, about an hour outside Seattle. For this episode, I decided to take a few things that Ryan and I were sort of naturally talking about anyway, and put it on the podcast for the rest of you to hear. This includes his view on religious iconography, symbolism, various things he's inspired by as a designer, a bit of a theological discussion about the phrase fear of God, panic attacks, mindfulness, and something called the Winhoff Method, which he and Demon Hunter guitarist Patrick Judge and Jeremiah Scott have semi-recently began practicing. It's a bit of a window into the type of conversations I've been very blessed to have with Ryan on an almost daily basis for a number of years in one of the most important friendships in my life, which dates all the way back to the late 90s when our old hardcore bands played shows together. If Ryan Clark is new to you and or if you are a first-time listener to this podcast, a little bit of context before we jump into the conversation. We start off talking about an in-depth documentary that accompanied the release of Demon Hunter's eighth album, Outlive, which talked about a number of personal upheavals, obstacles, and difficulties that confronted different members of the band in the time period between the creation of their seventh album and eighth. While a number of children joined the Demon Hunter family, literally, across the band members, there were illnesses, there was an apartment fire, during which the drummer... Yogi and his wife, Kara, lost almost all of their belongings just a few days before she gave birth to their first child. And in Ryan's case, a bit of a health scare, uh, where he forced himself to make some radical lifestyle changes in terms of diet and exercise that resulted in around 50 pounds of weight loss and a much different attitude towards his daily habits. So here it is, my conversation with Ryan Clark of Demon Hunter. This is No Prize from God.
someone who follows your work or is a fan and or as a fan of Demon Hunter has probably seen the documentary that accompanied the Outlive record in which there was a lot of conversations about a lot of upheaval and growth and change, some difficult, some extremely positive that had happened in everyone's lives uh, in between the record prior and that one. And one of those things for you personally, aside from starting a family with your wife and having a beautiful daughter, was having a health scare that resulted in a number of lifestyle changes for you, primar primarily dietarily, and some very significant weight loss. There's all the discipline of getting into a place where you want to be, whether that's appearance, health, overall feeling about yourself, all that sort of stuff. And then also being able to maintain some daily habits and all that sort of thing. So something we were talking about when we started talking about having you on no prize from God again, are some newer things that you've discovered of late that seem to be transformative for you. And I would, I would imagine without putting too much hocus pocus on it, have been both physically and mentally and, and perhaps spiritually renewing for you. So let's kick off talking about that. Yeah. When I, you know, when I first got like the diabetes thing, um, brought to my attention, like I, I, I knew so little about it and just kind of assumed, you know, that it could be as bad as it could be, you know, um, in learning more and more and more about it throughout that process, I realized that what whatever it was that I had, whatever, you know, version of type two um, that I had was something that n now I believe is um, reversible, at least in my experience. I, don't, I definitely don't want to say that, you know, everyone's going to be have the exact same um, experience that I did. But... In my case, I, doing what I did and then going into the doctor about five weeks, or sorry, five months after, after having done all, a lot of work and not doing the prescription stuff, but doing, you know, like you said, diet, exercise, you know, really, really turning my life upside down with that stuff. Um, and then having another A1C done and having it be not even pre-diabetic. It was, you know, it went from an 8.7 to like a 5.6. 5.6 is pretty normal. Um, and so I had done that, and then I had basically kind of plateaued into a more, um, into a kind of a more, a less strict diet. Um, you know, I didn't go full on back to the way that I, that I used to eat, and I don't think I probably ever will. I used to just eat with reckless abandon and I have like a real sweet tooth and my favorite things in the world to eat are just like carbs and sugar and cheese. And so I've learned that I, I just can't really fall back on doing that stuff really hard like I used to. That's I've made some pretty hard and fast rules for myself that I haven't broken over the course of the last three years or so. Um, like regular sodas kind of scare me now. Um, sodas like orange juice and lemonade and stuff like that that's just insanely high in sugar. Um, I'm, I'm hyper aware now of, of like the 
the carbohydrate and sugar content in, in most things. Um, or at least that's the first thing I look for when I go find something. So there's a few things that I, you know, that I just changed um, overall that I've been able to stick with. But then I've loosened up quite a bit on that stuff. I went in for an A1C about a year after going um, a little bit more, kind of normalizing my diet a little bit more, and it was still down. So, you know, I think I was just going through a period where I was eating maybe an inordinate amount of sweets and stuff, and so it just really kicked it up. Um, and so since then, I haven't really been going super hard. I haven't been exercising. I've kind of, I've fallen out of that a little bit. And, and there's, there are elements or times that I kind of want to get back into it because I just, I liked how I felt. I liked how, um, how sharp I felt, you know, mentally and how I felt physically and a lot of things that I just kind of deal with like digestive stuff and all that, um, is like a non-issue when I'm eating really well. And so for those reasons, I've always kind of wanted to go back as hard as I did, but it's not is um, it's not super easy in uh, uh, like in terms of habits for me. Um, I have to have all my food pretty well prepared. Um, it's not the kind of thing that you can hang out and go to a lot of uh, get-togethers and things like that, and you know birthdays and stuff. If, if you're doing that, it's just it kind of makes it a drag. Um, and, you know, depending on the time of year, it makes it harder and stuff like that. So anyway, um, I, I still have a lot of that, um, you know, information kind of swirling around in my head that kind of is my guide, the guidepost for what I do just in everyday living. But um, I've kind of found a, a, a medium, um, you know, a, a midpoint between going real hard and... Um, like the way that I used to be. So now that that's happened, you know, um, there are other things, like you mentioned, most recently um, I was kind of, I, I've never really dealt with stress um, or in, an, in the way that uh, manifests in anxiety or, or depression or anything like that. Um, I know a lot of people that do. Uh, it's obviously extremely prevalent these days. Um, and I've been very lucky to kind of dodge that bullet uh, for whatever reason. I think I take after my dad, uh, who's very, um, he's like a rock in that way. And um, so there was a day about three months ago that I, you know, started feeling like I was having trouble breathing. Um, and I, I've used an inhaler since I was a kid. Um, but I very seldom use it when I use it. I'd say, you know, I'll go th I'll have like a little bit of tightness in the chest if I eat too much or if I exercise a lot. Um, and so I'll take my inhaler, you know, like once or twice a month maybe. And I only take like one hit from it. And it's always just, it always works. I take it on tour with us so that when, you know, that's the only time I use it regularly is before shows, I'll take a hit because it gives me just a little bit of extra. Um, but when it, when I take it, it works, it always works. And th this time I took it and it just wasn't helping. Um, and so I was kind of think spiraling at that point and freaking out a little bit. So I was talking to Patrick on the phone, um, kind of as this was happening and he, uh, you know, we were just talking about panic attacks and stuff like that. And, um, I knew that was something that he had dealt with in the past and, I was just trying to put my finger on what was going on. He mentioned this guy, Wim Hof, 
um, who is a uh, he's kind of a, a guruish type of guy. Um, he has like 28 or so world records, most of which have to do with um, temperature, um, cold immersion. Um, you know, he's he's climbed Mount Everest with no shirt, <laughs> which is the craziest. I think the craziest thing I've ever heard. Um, he's he's run marathons in the desert without drinking water and without training for it. Um, he's. He holds the records for the longest cold immersion, full body sub, uh, submersion in, in ice, which is a couple hours. He can hold his breath for about 10 minutes. He'll like just cut a, a hole in, in the ice and just go swimming underneath the ice and just hold his breath for like 10 minutes. Uh, it's insane. Anyway, I, I started reading up on this guy and, and uh, you know, um, looking up a bunch of stuff. It's basically like a, um, a three-pronged thing for him, it's uh, breathing, like learning how to breathe. And then it's cold, usually, you know, in the form of cold showers for people that like, it's the most accessible way to do it is a cold shower. Not everyone can just like go outside and jump in the freezing cold uh, river or something. Um, and then like a kind of a mindfulness thing, which I haven't really, you know, that's that's something I'm not necessarily um, interested in so much. I'm kind of more interested in, in the biology aspect of it. And, um, I, not that the mindfulness doesn't have anything to do with that, but, uh, I just kind of fixated on the breathing aspect after trying one of his breathing exercises during this, you know, what I assume was kind of a panic attack. Um, and he, you know, walks you through this thing where you're breathing really intently and without stopping and fully in and fully out. And then you stop and you hold it and the first time is for a minute and then a minute and a half two minutes and I was able to do it the whole time and it, if you can hold it for longer he tells you to just you know pause the video or whatever and keep holding it and I was able to pause it pretty much every time which was a trip because I you know I felt like I was having trouble breathing and then here I was like holding my breath for two minutes um, after that I kind of got like more interested in and like exactly what that was and what he sa was saying about um, cold. Uh, he, you know, it's kind of, you can look him up, W-I-M-H-O-F. Um, he's a pretty big deal and a lot of like, you know, athletes and stuff are, um, follow him and stuff. But uh, it's pretty interesting. You know, I, I don't, uh, I'm a skeptic by nature and so I don't fully go into anything and fully submit and subscribe to anything but I do like um I do like aspects of things and I do get a little bit obsessed with those certain aspects or elements of certain things in this case I kind of quickly got obsessed with the cold the the concept of the cold shower um and what it potentially can do for you but also what it definitely does do so there to me there's like kind of two brackets to the cold shower thing first if like if you learn how to breathe through it you can jump into cold water or, or shower in freezing cold water without um you know getting hypothermia or something like that um, from gasping if you learn how to breathe and it's it's not anything it's not it's nothing special it's just an intently in and out it's just learning to breathe through it it's not that there's some secret to it it's just um, focusing on your breath through the the shock of the cold is really all that it is. 
And after a few minutes, you learn that your body's kind of getting used to it. You have to get it like in every crevice of your body, like especially like your armpits and areas that would stay warm unless they were like exposed. But once you expose your whole body to it, it's crazy because after about two or three minutes, you start to adapt to it and it doesn't bother you as much anymore. Um, so the long term, you know, the, the supposed or proposed long term effects are, you know, um, that you can fight off, you know, the, the big picture, the big idea stuff is that you can fight off infections, you can fight off stress, you can fight off depression, you can fight off all these things not just from a physical standpoint, because you're basically waking up parts of your body that, that are kind of always um, dormant. Um, not only are you waking up your, your senses and your, your um, nerves and your blood flow and all of that kind of stuff, which helps with, you know, overall with inflammation. Inflammation's like at the root of a lot of, um, our, of issues that we face. Um, autoimmune diseases, et cetera. Inflammation is a big kind of factor there. And so if you can battle inflammation, like the cold is supposed to help with that. Um, but also it, it's supposed to do something by proxy. Um, the, what, what it does for you physically is uh, forces you to learn how to combat something that is shocking to your system and then kind of adapt to that. Um, and you have to be fully, you can't really think about anything else when you're, when you're thrust into like freezing cold, you have to be fully in it. You, I mean, you are fully in it. You have no choice really. So you can't really think about other things. You can't really, it's like being on a motorcycle kind of, like you have to be aware, you have to be present or else you know in the back of your head that you could die easily. So it's a little bit of the same, but it's obviously like, it's not quite as uh, high stakes, but you are forced in this scenario to be present in there. I get that same feeling that you're describing from training in hand-to-hand -hand combat and obviously sparring specifically, but even, uh, you know, doing like basic boxing combinations. If you're right, you know, whoever's working your pads with you, if you're not paying attention to when they're swinging their arm around for you to duck and that sort of thing, you know, and, and it is, maybe 50%, if not more, uh -huh. the best thing about it is being forced to do that and being forced into a situation where you cannot have, be absent-minded or scatterbrained or thinking about a thousand things as people like us, I think, tend to be doing at all times. When I think that's, you know, allowing your mind to wander and obsess about certain things is kind of like inherently the issue with with depression and with anxiety and things like that. It's like, it's all the what ifs, it's all the like, you know, um, worst case scenarios and all those kinds of things. And your, your mind is just kind of like honing in on those and fixating on those. And so I, you know, ideally what this would do, or, you know, theoretically what it does is trains your body to be able to fight off uh, the shock of a stress, a, a physical stress, which in turn should help your mind be able to do the same. Um, but it's also, it's also essentially, it's, it's taking that, the, the, the idea that you have to be there and present and not be, not be able to be obsessing about anything else, that's also kind of training your mind at the same time to be able to do that just in daily life with whatever scenario you're in. 
is not, you know, be in control of where your mind goes, not allow it to go into those areas where you're going to be fixated on something that's going to make you anxious or stressed out or whatever. Um, so there's, there's that. That's kind of the big picture stuff is that it could be very beneficial, beneficial to your health mentally and physically. Um, and there's some crazy uh, things that Wim has done that go really far into the, those realms um, where he's been injected with, you know, viruses and he's breathed. He's, he says that he can basically access his innate immune system and uh, not get whatever virus has been injected directly into his blood. Um, and he, I, according to the studies, like he, he has never, you know, he's been in all these studies where they've d tried that and he's actually like not got any of the symptoms from these things, which is crazy. And he says that anyone can do this stuff. It's just like, he's not special. It's just all that, how you, what you, what you do with your breathing and your mind and stuff. So it's kind of crazy. Have people been talking about viruses in 2020? Is it, is that a thing? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of a, an in interesting element to it. Um, I mean, that's definitely, I think there's, there's a, a, a few reasons why I kind of gravitated towards this at the time that it was happening, which was for me, like early February, I had just been ultra sick, um, with something that held on for a long time. I honestly still don't know what it was. I never, um, I, I've never witnessed being sick like I was and it lasted for over a month. The only reason why I'm guessing that it's not COVID is because my symptoms were a lot different than what everyone else was describing, um, or at least different enough for me to feel like it wasn't, it wasn't exactly that. Um, but the more I hear about how differently affects pe it affects people, the more I wonder if that's what I did have. Um, and so I think a combo of what was happening there with all of us in our heads and worldwide and everything, and then just like the different, um, you know, the difference in our schedules and in our daily lives that kind of has been happening over the last few months. It's like we're not going out as much. We're kind of finding different things to, to fill our time. For me, I've been very busy with work, so not a lot has changed, but I haven't gone out really at all. And, and I've kind of, I think people are like growing out their beard or, you know, um, coloring their hair or whatever. People are just kind of finding things to do to keep themselves like a little bit interested in life. And, I, and so this is one of those things, you know, for me where I was like, maybe I'll try this. Um, what I like about it um, is really, like I said, it's the biological stuff. Um, if it does nothing else than what it does for me on a daily basis, I'm fine with that. If it does more than that, if it actually does help you know, infl with inflammation in the long term, if it does help keep me um, healthy more often, um, uh, less prone to sickness and colds and things like that, uh, I'm all for it. But if at the end of the day, all that it does is the two things that I do like about it, um, then I'm, I'm fine with that. And those two things would be, I mean, it wakes you up like crazy. I take a shower every morning. And for me, it's just like a, you know, you take a cold shower or you take a normal warm shower and it's kind of just relaxing and you kind of get out and it, like, yes, it does kind of help you wake up, but like to a certain degree, if you, if you do that followed by a cold shower for like three, four five minutes, you get out of the shower just like, it's such a jolt to the system. And I like that about it. I've certainly been guilty of taking a 
nice, warm, long shower and wanting to immediately fall asleep afterwards. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, of course. The other thing it does that is just, um, you know, it's definitely more psychological than anything else, but I do like the, the idea of it is like kind of checking off one difficult thing for yourself um, every day and having that be basically the first thing that you do in the day is like one difficult thing. Um, it's kind of like a, a an easy, it's not easy in doing it because it does suck, to be honest. It's like it, you don't always want to do it. Um, I very seldom, I'm, I've been doing it for 66 days now and I'm getting to the point where I don't really want to do it every time. I was jazzed on it for the first couple of weeks, you know, and I still really love the benefits of how it makes me feel afterwards. Afterwards, I'm always glad I did it. But getting into it is it, it's not always fun. <laughs> you just you just described like every workout, every <laughs> you know, <laughs> you never want to do it beforehand, and then afterwards you're like, oh, I'm so glad I did that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Of course, of course. Yeah, it's definitely in that same category. That that's the hard part. But the easy part is that it's like it's already on my daily path. I don't have to go buy some special food from the grocery store. I don't have to core out a half hour, an hour to work out. I don't have to do anything except literally turn the dial on my shower. So it's like I'm already there. It's I'm already in water. You know, there's really nothing I have to do but to deal with cold. So that, that's what I like about it is it doesn't really change anything about my... I, it's something that I can do that's already on my daily path every day. And on top of that, it does... You know, it gives me that feeling of having accomplished something that was like not super easy to do. And um, hopefully that bleeds into the rest of my day where if things come up that frustrate me or, you know, whether in, in work or at home or whatever, I'd be more likely to not obsess about those things and let those things get out of control um, because I've already kind of dealt with something that day that was actually, you know, kind of a shock to the system. So if nothing else, I like that about it and I'm going to keep doing it. Um, we're planning on going on a road trip in about a week here and we're going to, there are going to be drives that are 10 hours a day for, you know, a few days in a row. And I'm actually kind of excited to be like getting up in the hotel and taking like a freezing shower. Cause I just know that'll jolt me, you know, that'll be a great way to start the day <laughs> when I'm going to be driving for that long. So I think there are a lot of, um, times and situations where it's going to come in really handy. I'm actually very curious to do it next time we go on the road to play shows, you know, get a cold shower going like 10 minutes before I hit the stage and see what that could do. I think that'd be awesome. Now, what about doing a cold shower before you hit the stage and then a hot shower when you need to go to sleep? Oh, yeah, that would probably be the best. Yeah. I, I have only done, see me and Patrick and Jeremiah have all been doing this, um, I've been the one that's been most consistent about it, I think, um, and probably the most obsessed with it. But those guys have been dabbling with it. Uh, so it's been fun to talk about how we've all experienced it and like with different things that we're trying. For the most part, what I do is I take a normal shower, um, wash myself in a normal shower, and then turn the water down. For a couple of months, I was just I would step out, turn it down, get my limbs used to the cold, and then just go go for it. Um, for the last, I'd say for the last two weeks, I've been um, just turning the cold after my regular shower, just turning the, turning it straight to cold while my body's in the water. 
And then on one or two occasions, I just woke up in the morning and just turned it cold and just jumped straight into the cold and actually washed myself in the cold. So I'm, I'm like, you know, at the point now where I'm kind of experimenting with what, what version of it I like the best. Um, but it's not so much that you just take a cold shower. You can take a normal shower and then just kind of wrap it up with a cold shower. And according to like the Wim Hof stuff, it's like he says you start out with like 15 seconds or something like that. To me, that doesn't really do much. Um, I, the first time I did it, I did it until I got used to it, um, or at least to a certain degree. Um, and that's when I really felt like it was beneficial. When, you, when you're able to kind of take your mind off of it, slow your breathing, and start actually thinking about other stuff, um, that's when I feel like it's doing something kind of unique and cool. Um, but yeah, when you're fighting it off at very first, you know, if you just turn the w cold water on yourself or just jump in the cold water, it, it can help to like shadow box and jump around. And <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, anything you can do to kind of like combat it, but you got to remember to just to breathe through it. But yeah, that's been something I've been, you know, that's been a little something I can add to my daily routine um, with, with ease. And you know, both of us share a, a healthy skepticism and I think uh, for me anyway, I don't want to speak for both of us, but when there's a personality attached to an idea or a belief system, I get especially skeptical, you know, if it's like, oh, this is the, it's the Wim Hof method. But I would say to support what you're talking about, there's a lot of other information available out there since you first mentioned that to me. You know, there was a Scandinavian research study done about how cold showers can help burn fat and all the science in there um, about, um, and I'm sure this was a big thing for Patrick being the workout guy that he is, um, cold showers boosting recovery after exercise, and then all the stuff you've talked about in terms of increasing your alertness and your overall mood. And then also, yeah, your immunity, your blood flow, um, even your, your skin, and this wouldn't be as relevant to you, but your hair apparently <laughs> get benefits from, the one thing that I definitely do subscribe to, if nothing else, is that there's nothing, there's nothing bad about it, and chances are there are several things good about it. That's one thing that I can say. Yeah, the risk versus reward scenario is, you know, as opposed to different extreme things that you hear about, whether they're diets or whatever. Exactly, where you're like, oh, maybe this is actually bad for me after doing it for three months. You know, it's like I know it's not that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, and. Uh, at the very least, it's the worst it could be doing to you is being slightly uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, exactly. Which is, again, that to me is good, even if that's all it does. I mean, yeah. And then there's the whole thing of, of hydrotherapy, which I think is very closely tied to, you know, this this sounds like a, a building block of of that, you know. Yeah, there's the there's the cryo stuff. I mean, there's a lot of... You know, and you see athletes kind of sitting in ice baths and stuff. And, uh, you know, that's that's for a number of reasons, um, a lot of which wouldn't necessarily apply to someone like me who sits in a, at a desk all day. But all that to say, it, it's it's clear that there is something to it um, that they're basically giving to, you know, the elite that can't be bad for people like me. Um and I, you know, me and Patrick, you know, and, and Jeremiah have been talking a lot about like different sorts of um, remedies for just whatever it is. Um, 
any garden variety of just ailments, we're kind of, we're all skeptics like you were talking about, and we're kind of at that point in our lives where we're kind of tired of being given like the easy uh, average Joe application, you know, medically and, 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 and otherwise. We kind of, you know, the way that I put it is like, give me the Bill Gates version. When I go into the doctor, I want like the Bill Gates version of what you would, what you would tell someone. You know what I mean? Like, give me the important guy thing um, because I don't want the average Joe thing. I'm not going to just take a pill and hope that it goes away. Like, it, assume that I'm going to do the work and I'm going to do the hard thing. Um, that's what I want you to assume. And so it's like there are a lot of things that are kind of outside the realm of standard medicine that they don't really give and tell people. Um, you know, the food pyramid is completely flawed. They're just, there's some really old school things that kind of still exist in pharmaceuticals and regular medicine that um, we're all getting pretty skeptical about. And so um, that's kind of where we're all at right now and talking a lot about that kind of stuff. And also, much like a lot of health and medicine, there's a lot of ancient wisdom that's just being, you know, it's, it's being, it's being like proven by science in this case, you know, you, you know, the idea that monks for, you know, hundreds of years have been cold shower fans. I was reading about uh, in the mountains, uh, just outside Tokyo, these Japanese monks that go into like a, a freezing ice cold waterfall and meditate in the waterfall and then hike the mountain <laughs> the waterfalls on while still drenched in the ice cold water and of course you know there's research on these monks and all these all the benefits of you know they're onto something like it's not an accident like they're not just being <laughs> ridiculous for, you know for its own sake totally Totally. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think these days, you know, the, the tendency is to throw the baby out with the bathwater if there's like a spiritual element to it that you don't necessarily subscribe to. Um, and I think that's also just kind of um, a, a major flaw in the way that people kind of look at these, at these things is, you know, if yoga is, is inherently like Eastern religion and you're, you know, that's not something you subscribe to, um, I don't, I don't think that you necessarily have to like throw the baby out with the bathwater um, in practicing or not practicing those things because of some, some element of those things that might exist. Um, uh, the reason I like the Wim Hof stuff, you know, especially initially when I first started hearing about it is he didn't kind of over-spiritualize it. I, I liked that he kept it really biological. Um, but I, th I also think there's, there are plenty of things uh, that are out there that might have kind of an overwhelming spiritual connection that might not be something that, that I or someone else would subscribe to that are still very beneficial. Um, and it's, it's just so happens that someone's kind of slapped that uh, spiritual element on there by virtue of, you know, whoever found out. It's like planting a, a flag on the moon or something. It's like you can still practice yoga and not be a Buddhist, you know. It, you can still get the benefits of of some of these remedies and not necessarily have to subscribe to whatever, um, whatever like spiritual elements are attached to it just by proxy. And I think a lot of that is a very American evangelical puritanical 
sort of view of Christianity in general, the idea that right it's the bubble it's the bubble like the the scared it's the scared little bubble that you know evangelicals find themselves in yeah and, and I think it's where you know in uh, you know for example the whole and this now this will naturally segue into something else I wanted to talk about which is, I didn't even realize I was about to do but you know the Catholic Protestant argument a lot of the on the Protestant side, a lot of the excitement and rejuvenation of Christianity came from stripping away so much of the, the ritual and the, the tradition, the artifice. The tradition. Mm -hmm. But one has to wonder, on the other further end of the extreme, how much we've lost a connection to the the reverence the mysticism the you know the 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 sort of the magic of early christendom and i think you know certainly there are <laughs> it's funny if you google cold shower christian christianity half of the results are about chastity and <laughs> abstinence <laughs> now you should take cold showers to avoid, you know, for your lustful proclivities. But the other, but the other half are, you know, turning up things about Christian monks and about um, cold showers playing into Christian traditions. So, yeah, there is definitely a, a fear and a phobia that I think is grounded more in the notion that any kind of spiritual experience outside of personal prayer and praise and worship in a, church setting is somehow dangerous or not of God or, you know, going to lead you astray. You know, the idea that, yeah, if you go to a yoga class, you're uh, somehow, you know, slipping, slipping further towards hell <laughs> because some kind of magic voodoo is going to infect your soul. And I think that's, that's a very modern idea, you know, as much as, a lot of Christians fashion themselves as as adhering to timeless, you know, primordial ideas and doctrines. I think that the specific thing we're talking about is, is a very modern invention and it's very much cultural more than it's theological. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, the, I mean, that's just, you know, a, to me, that's just a, a byproduct of of the kind of the fear that comes along with like with this modern American Christianity. Um, you know, if you hang out with, if, if you're, uh, if you take a drink or uh, have a cigarette, you know, it's just, it's, it's a slippery slope and it's just all, you know, all of those sorts of, uh, and we're talking about things like on a spiritual nature too. It's, it's not, it really has very little to do with like, whether or not you're going to run someone over on a drunk in a car, it's, it's really about like your, your soul, you know, and that's what makes it so silly. It's, um, I, I think it's just, we've, like you said, we've kind of gone down this path of just, um, you know, everything has become kind of like a, feels more like a, a rule or a limitation, um, and less like free, like, you know, like being free in any manner. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I, I, the older I get, you know, I, I've 
I consider my beliefs to have remained pretty steadfast in what I believed, um, you know, a long time ago. And but, you know, the I'm less and less concerned with what someone is going to think about um, something that I'm interested in, like whether it's something like this Wim Hof thing or if it's something else altogether. I'm less concerned with uh, it feeling like it needs to, you know perfectly line up in everyone's minds, you know, with whatever, whatever version of Christianity or whatever this thing is. And, you know, I mean, obviously that's, you know, I don't mean that for everything, but, um, for things like this, like practices, like you were saying, rituals, things like that. Like I've, you know, I've always kind of been a little bit obsessed with that sort of thing, um, as it pertains to like Catholicism and early Christianity um, that's the kind of stuff that I like to collect and um, influences a lot of my design work and stuff like that. So um, I'm, I kind of have a natural inclination to obsess about that kind of stuff and, and, and be into the, the idea of the mysticism or the, the, the magic, like you said. So that comes kind of naturally for me. Yeah, and that's, that's something I've, I've wanted to get into, and, and this is a great forum and place to do that. You know, I believe you were the first person actually that ever said to me in conversation, you know, I grew up with, uh, my mom was a, a Presbyterian and, and coming from that born again tradition of the seventies and early eighties. And I, you know, I remember driving past a store window where they had painted something about an Xmas sale and her telling me, you know, that's oh, sacrilegious, you know, you can never, you can never write Xmas. It's got a be Christmas because it's Xing the Christ out of it. They're trying to take Christ out of Christmas. And and this wasn't like a Fox News war on Christmas. This was decades before that. And you were the first person that I ever heard say in passing, like actually the X is like a Greek symbol for Christ. And um, you'd said it kind of offhandedly and as learned and as uh, deep dives, as many deep dives as I've taken into different theological concepts from all sorts of different religions. I'd never heard that before you said it. And I was kind of like, Oh, you know, I realized I'd been hanging on to this superstitious feeling, this weird feeling about seeing Xmas, like it was evil or wrong or secular. Yeah. I mean, if it was Xmas as in like defacing the Christ part of Christmas, do you think like, yeah. an X spray painted over it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think like all these, you know, chain retailers would be like yeah like it's like put the upside down cross on her <laughs> like what is it akin to if, if that's what actually what it is like it's just it's for some reason at some point people just assumed that it was some sort of anti because x kind of means anti sometimes it's just a very shallow short-sighted way of looking at it but it's like if you know x is the you know the px the chiro or cairo however you say it that's Jesus and Christ together. So it's, you know. And there's a lot of power and interpretation and history in a lot of early Christian symbolism. You know, when we were working on relaunching the Blessed Resistance and you were looking for new logos and symbols and things like that, and you came across the cross of Lorraine, you know, we, we sort of knew that there would be a handful of fans and it was, it was 
refreshingly few, but there were a couple of fans that were like, wait, what is this cross? This looks, this looks satanic. What is this? And, you know, if anything, you know, looking at it, it's glass half full. It was an opportunity to enlighten and share a little bit about like, no, actually, here's what this specific cross means. Here's the history of it. Here's how it's been used. Here's why it looks this particular way. And, you know, stop it all off. Uh, we thought it looked cool. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm curious where, you know, given the more sort of mainline Protestant non-denominational background of yours, you know, from childhood and all of that, when and where and how your fascination with that, the symbolism and the mystery and the the art side of, of early Christendom, where that, how that developed for you? Well, I mean, artistically, I've always been, you know, that just any sort of like eerie, um, innately kind of um, secretive or, you know, any sort of secret meaning or elite thing that, that just seems kind of like whether it was Masonic or cult-based or, or old religious or, or um, you know, um, or uh, even Odd Fellows and stuff like that, you know, all that stuff is just, there's like an innately kind of like creepy and cool thing to it. And, you know, my thinking was, well, a lot of that stuff is based on like old religious symbols in the first place. Um, you know, certainly the, uh, the Catholic and early Christian stuff predates a lot of the, the occult-based stuff. A lot of the occult-based stuff is just a, a play on a lot of that, that early religious stuff. Um, so I, I always liked the, the idea of kind of the the vibe that that sort of stuff gives off. Um, and, and, you know, kind of always selfishly wanted to ha have something like that that I could play with that still, you know, w would still basically uphold my ideals um, and my worldview. Um, I just think there's something, and like you said, there was like a, you know, not not that it's, not that there wasn't anything wrong with the good old days of the of you know ancient Christianity and things like that, but um, what I do like about it is it's it is symbolic of an era of reverence and um, where like God seemed extremely present and real, and there was like a there was a reverence and a fear to it all, and that like that fear element to me is kind of what makes it almost seem scary or creepy. And I just, I like that. I just like that just as a guy who likes heavy metal and a guy who grew up in skateboarding and a guy who grew up with counterculture stuff and liking stuff that kind of jarred people or made people feel uncomfortable, you know, like whether it was something that was on a t-shirt or, you know, something on the bottom of your skateboard or whatever. I just, I have that, whatever that kind of innate, you know, uh, rebellion that, that happened as a, a teen in my punk rock and hardcore days. It's like there's something that just kind of happened then and it hasn't necessarily gone away. Um, as a pastor's kid, it's, you know, I wasn't really encouraged to draw like scary things, even though I was, I had a, a real proclivity to just draw skulls and, and blood and stuff like that. I was just kind of, I was probably obsessed with it more because 
it it was off not I wouldn't say off limits, but it just wasn't um, necessarily something that would be encouraged. And so that's just remained. Um, I don't really know exactly how to how to explain it more than that, but it's it's just something that I think. Um, very few things that you can just look at, very simp simple icons and symbols and shapes and things can actually conjure a vibe where, where you're actually either forced to think about them or consider them or wonder what they are. Um, very few things can do that, especially in this day and age. And I like the idea of something that is a simple form that can kind of either make someone interested, upset, any of those sorts of feelings. I just like being able to get feelings out of people with, with doing hardly anything at all, you know, just by using symbols or by using, um, you know, certain words or things like that. I, I just like that idea. I like the idea that that's still even possible um, because nothing's really shocking anymore, you know. Nothing's shocking and everything's explained to death and everything's used for different purposes. But there are still some things that, yeah, you're, I mean, have, I mean, obviously the swastika is where your mind goes in terms of symbols that elicit feelings of dread and disgust and anger and whatever else. Uh, but yeah, the fact that that's something like that, that is so simple, that's just a, a certain, you know, lines drawn in a certain pattern that you can see that and immediately feel things and i think yeah you hit upon something massive which is that idea of the old christian iconography how it how it had reverence how it had awe how you felt more immersed you know the divine was something that you experienced every day out, out in the world and you could see and touch and i think you know and that speaks a lot to the power of, of art and symbolism in general, but I also think something else that's crucial that you touched on is that idea of fear. Cause you, you know, fear of God is one of those phrases that we've heard so much that we don't really think about it uh, in terms of what it really means and, and what the implications of that are. Well, it sounds like it, it's, I feel like nowadays, especially it comes across as a very negative aspect of Christianity at least from from the onset, you know, if you were just to hear that as someone who wasn't, didn't, you know, maybe had never heard it before, it doesn't sound like a welcoming aspect. Yeah, yeah, be be afraid not that you, you shouldn't break the rules or you're going to get struck by lightning sort of fear, yeah. Yes, yeah. It's it's not a welcoming sounding, you know, element of of Christianity. It's, it's definitely one of the deeper, it needs a little unpacking for sure. Yeah, and I think that the idea of, of fear and awe, uh, you know, th there's there's some overlap. There's maybe somewhere on the on the diagram that, to the furthest extent that a lot of secular humanists have evolved in their thinking, that they have a fear and awe of the the chaos of the natural universe, and you know that's it, it's like it's not really that crazy of a concept if you're going to believe in any sort of higher power that has any kind of guiding hand and what's around us like you should be in awe and and fear of that and that's something that with a lot of the focus on love and grace which is which are essential components to christian theology 
but with so much focus on that and so much emphasis on worshipfulness and kindness and some of that fear and awe, uh, I think is also essential and doesn't, you know, it gets, it gets diminished and, and compartmentalized and put aside in favor of this, like, our God is a loving God and everything's grace. It's like, yeah, but creation itself and existence is so much bigger than us and, and should be, you know, revered. Yeah. That's the, the reverence is really the thing that I was going to say. It's like, you can often re- just, you know, replace the word fear with reverence and it, it essentially means what you're trying to say with fear usually. Um, and like we're, you know, going full circle of talking about taking a cold shower uh, I explain that as like something that's that kind of there's a reverence about it because there's a you realize when you're kind of out of control of something to the point where you need to like focus your mind or body to be able to deal with it it you can't help but be reverent of it or have some sort of respect for it um, and there are only a few things that I've ever witnessed in my life that like you were saying, training, um, you know, Krav Maga or whatever it is, um, sparring, stuff like that. To, for me, it would, the other two things would be, like I said, riding a motorcycle or like shooting a firearm. And, it, you know, that's another thing where it's like you need to be fully present and you need to have a healthy respect for this thing that's in your hand because if you aren't paying attention or you're not doing it properly, like something really majorly bad could happen. So there, there has to be kind of an innate respect happening in the background at all times, if not the foreground. That's a great example of the type of fear that we're talking about, because you shouldn't be afraid of the firearm in the sense that you're trembling so hard that you drop it on the ground um, or that you won't go near one, is my opinion. I know different people feel different ways about firearms but a a healthy fear and awe of of being aware of of what it's capable of and what mishandling it can do that's got to be part and parcel of your whole experience with it right right exactly and that's that's i guess the difference between just like fear like a surface level fear and like a reverent respect based fear and I think that that's, you know, that's what I, that's what I like about, about all that sort of art and symbolism that goes with the old school stuff is that there is, there is some kind of mystical fear kind of attached to it. And some of that might be, um, you know, how we view um, entities that have sort of adopted certain symbolism. You know, like we were saying, we, we kind of took the cross of Lorraine and tried to make it our own. It's, we, we didn't know if, you know, we were willing to take that risk that you know maybe some group at some point had taken that and kind of drug it through the mud at some point um it, it, we knew that it wasn't if that had happened that it wasn't as well known as like a swastika or something insane like that um and obviously anytime that you're designing something there's a, a famous designer named michael beirut and i always <laughs> remember it in an interview with him so, you know, he does a lot of logos. He did American Airlines and a lot of other, you know, major companies. Um, and he's always like, if it starts looking like a swastika at all, like, it doesn't matter if, if you feel like you're the only one that can see it, just start over. 
And so every time I've done like, you know, been doing like a wheel of something, like where maybe there's like arms that are like bent at the elbow. It's like a wheel of arms or whatever, like kind of something that looks like neurosis would use or whatever. If it starts kind of having that look, it's just like, just throw it away and start over. That's incredible. Yeah. And that brings me to, you know, you recently built a website, uh, more sort of a not replacing invisible creature, but more of an addendum sort of supplementary thing. Invisible creature, obviously the company that you do with your brother, um, has, has a certain look and feel and has branched out into a lot of different things, whether it's, you know, the work you guys have done with Xbox or different illustrated books and toys and merchandise and posters. And, uh, I think you, you realized there was a need for a place that, showcased just your album artwork because there is so much of it at this point. And that brings me to, you know, we talked a lot about the type of symbolism and imagery that you use and why when it comes to your own musical endeavors, Demon Hunter and, and otherwise, where does that figure in doing artwork for someone else? Because obviously you're, you know, there's a balance between representing something that's representative of the band or singer and whatever, and what they want to get across with that particular piece, as well as putting your own stamp and personality in there as the artist. You know, I'm always curious about that particular balance and, and, and how much then you are able to introduce things that are close to your interests and your beliefs and that sort of thing. Well, it all definitely depends on the band and the project itself. Um, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of um, artwork that is kind of centers on symbolism, um, whether it's something that's kind of overtly supposed to look culty. Um, you know, like uh, I did the artwork for um, Atlas Moth a couple of years ago and uh, came up with this symbol for them for a, an album called The Old Believer. Um, and so given the album title and the art direction, it was like, it, it really just had to look kind of culty. Um, and so that's just, that's one of those overt opportunities to just do something that looks like that. But then, you know, I've done a lot of kind of uh, creepy looking icon iconography and symbolism for like you know, a lot of Christian bands and stuff. Um, and that's, to me, there needs to be some sort of element. Uh, it, I don't believe in doing any aspect of any sort of art um, arbitrarily. So even if it's not obvious um, from the onset, like with, you know, if you're just taking a glance at something, if it's not obvious to you that it, it is this or that, that's not necessarily concerning to me. What's concerning to me with any sort of symbolism is that there's a deliberate reasoning for doing certain parts of it. Like if someone just wanted me to do some sort of symbolism that just didn't mean anything, I wouldn't be able to do it because I need, I need somewhere to start. Um, and usually that starting point is like, what am I trying to say through this? It doesn't really matter you know, most of the time it's not going to matter if at the end of the day it reads that way, you know, if it reads this or that. What's important is that you could, if you wanted to, explain it to someone and then it would make sense. 
Um, and that's more often the goal for me is to make something that's that's intriguing and interesting and, and people can kind of like sit and ponder. And even like the the withdrawing of information, like the lack of information to me can be like the most important element of it um, because that keeps people wondering and thinking about it. It keeps it in their head. If they know what it is right from the jump, then they're going to forget about it in two hours. If they don't know what it is and they see it every couple of days or every month or whatever and they still don't know what the heck it is, that to me is a win, um, especially if in the background it actually does mean something. Um, so, you know, you have an, an album like Dead Poetic New Medicines, which is just a symbol on the front. And it's, it's an abstraction of a pill. It's basically before Under Oath had the crossed out O, it was basically an O with a line through it. Um, but it's, it's an abstraction of like a typical uh, prescription pill. Um, so that's, you know, is simple enough. And I think most people probably understood that. Um, and then you have the O Sleeper logo, which is very much based on a lyric. Um, and that's another one that I did that, that actually ended up having a decent amount of legs after I did it. Um, it's something that you see tattooed and stuff, which is cool. But that was based on a lyric that said, I'll tear off your horns, like in, in reference to the devil. And so I started thinking about like, how could I take a symbol that was, you know, um, inherently uh, widely known as, as satanic and, and kind of do what they do with a kind of flip the script on on Satanism or the occult or whatever, you know, they'll take a cross and flip it upside down. They'll take a, even the pentagram, you know, right side up uh, is an old religious symbol that wasn't occult based, but you flip it upside down, that top triangle is essentially God and everything else is on top of it. That makes it, you know, satanic or occult based. So I was thinking, what could we do with something that was occult based that would flip it back then the other the other way, you know, kind of this perpetual like pranking. <laughs> um, and so took the the pentagram, which was again just something that they took from Christianity and flipped it literally. And then when you see the Baphomet head imposed inside the uh, inside the pentagram, the horns are at the top are at the top pieces. So I figured if the lyrics say cut off your horns, what if I just snip the, those two top pieces off? Um, and so that was, that was our way of kind of, um, taking a pre-existing symbolism and, and, and tweaking it a little bit. Um, and that's kind of what we did with Blessed Resistance. The, the Cross of Lorraine is kind of take that pre-existing symbol and just, um, centering on that and maybe doing like some minor adjustments or tweaks to it just to kind of make it your own. Um, but I, I've done so much of that sort of thing, like symbolism, whether it be for song titles or for an album, album title or something like that. Um, it's one of the things that I really like to do um, in terms of, you know, what, what still interests me in doing album artwork and things like that. But um, yeah, I, I put together basically a, a collection of all my favorite album covers that I've done over the years. I didn't want to get ahead, too far ahead of myself and do like full artwork and show like the interiors and stuff, which would be really nice to do for a lot of them because I do, I do feel like you get a much better picture of how impressive and cool the art is for something, say like Norma Jean's Oh God, The Aftermath. I was going to say Norma Jean would be one, yeah. Yeah. So in that case, like the cover is definitely the most lackluster piece of that artwork, but to me, it's like I would just get carried away if I was going to start doing the interiors and stuff. Well, I did like that you used both 
versions of the Atlas Moth cover on your site. Yeah, there are a couple. That and um, Alice in Chains, I use the, both the, the version that goes under the red jewel case and the version that's out of it. Um, just because I can kind of, I can get, I can kill two birds with one stone, one stone and get kind of a little bit of extra if I do that with some things. But I didn't want to, I mean, for, for starters, a lot of that old artwork is harder for me to access these days. There's a lot of files that I've either lost or have gone missing or um, are, were done in Cork Express, which I don't even have anymore. And so like, it would just kind of open up a can of worms that would basically mean that I'm never gonna launch this thing. So I was like, what if I just focused on album covers? Um, and this had come after basically realizing that not only am I still getting a mostly album um, package jobs, that's m most of what I do. Right now I'm probably working on like seven or eight of them simultaneously. So the, the realization that, you know, even though Invisible Creature has changed a lot, most of that change is really reflected in my brother's work and not mine. And Invisible Creature as a site and as an entity needs to be a certain thing. Um, it, it's, it's a brand unto its own. But I also wanted a place where I could kind of do this just dump of all the artwork I've done throughout the years, not only because I'm getting so many music jobs still, and I thought that it would be... Um, something that could actually be useful to send to my clients that I get right now. But also I'm at the point now where I've done so much that it's kind of even impressive just to me to see how many there are there. And a, a site like Invisible Creature, like I said, just isn't the place to put, you know, 200, 300 album covers. Um, it's just not the sort of, it just doesn't really fit the brand at this point, at this stage. Um, but you know, Don was encouraging of me to be able to do that, especially in light of the, the type of jobs that I get and the, the things that I'd like to do. I, honestly, I've known a lot of people that have worked in the music industry um, as designers that kind of get sick of it at a certain point and kind of swear it off or try not try not to get. And there's the reasons to do that, obviously. Like, the, it, it can be a frustrating industry to work in, um, not only just from a budgetary standpoint, but you know, just the, the, the level of professionalism is a little, sometimes a little bit lacking. And um, it's, it's definitely the place where you'll get paid for something uh, later than you'd get paid for anything else. Everyone's on like a net 90. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad you, uh, gladly, what is it? I'm glad you pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there are reasons to be to to get jaded by it, but for some reason, I'd still just love the feeling of opening up Photoshop or whatever and just creating uh, a square template. You know, like a these days, obviously everyone's doing vinyl, so I'll usually create like a 13-inch, 300 DPI square template. There's just something about it still to me. I haven't lost that love for it, and I think you know, having done probably. I've probably done about four or 500 um, album packages, and the, the fact that I still like it, at this point, I still get a lot out of it, meant enough to me to just kind of do something to celebrate it a little bit. And so um, that's, that's really the reasoning for it, and it's something cool that I can give to, to clients to basically... Uh, the, the, another good you know, byproduct of doing it is that 
um, some clients that haven't worked with me as much, you know, that maybe got turned on to me from someone else or, or maybe the band just wanted to use me or something. Um, and I'm talking to the management or whatever. Um, some people don't understand how much experience I have in doing album packaging. Um, and so with that comes a lot of like questioning my motives and, and questioning my decision making. And I feel that if I showed someone, you know, like 300 album covers <laughs> that just comprised the things that I actually like liked, you know, um, was only just a portion of what I've done, that it might just inherently say like, you can trust me, like look how much stuff I've done. So, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that's another fortunate byproduct of doing this is just that like a little, it's a little bit proof, you know, um, which I usually don't need to be honest. Usually people have worked with me a lot or, you know, there's kind of a, a built-in respect from the get, but um, I, I figure it couldn't help hurt. Well, and something that I love uh, there too is, you know, we've talked, you and I have talked about less is more with websites. And I love you having this just record cover specific site because on the one hand, it's just one thing, but on the other hand, it's a lot of that one thing. And it, and it does serve that purpose in showing not only the depth of your experience, but the variety of things that you do. And through scrolling, you know, you can see how each of these is suited to the specific project. And yet there is kind of, there are some threads that you start to pick up continuity wise where you can recognize that there's a style. And I also like, you know, being able to look at this stuff all together, you know, looking at something like, uh, haste the day when everything falls or dead poetic the finest that are like you know 15 years old that they sit alongside things that you've done in the last year and are of the same quality and and have you know it speaks to the timelessness of the work that you do it doesn't look i don't look at a haste the day record cover from 2005 and go look how old and funny and cheesy that looks you know i look at it and it sits with the Alice in Chains record you did a few years ago and, and looks just as uh, relevant and, you know, striking and all that sort of thing. So and I think that speaks a lot to the intentionality, as you talked about being that there's an intention behind each of these. It isn't just, oh, this looks cool. Uh, yeah, I guess another, like you're saying, stylistically, I, that's another giant um, uh, plus to having done something like this is, you know, I... I have a few different wheelhouses stylistically that I, I like to play in and that I'm able to do well. Um, and it's nice to be able to show what those things are. Cause I think there are a lot of things that I can do well. And then there are a decent number of things that, you know, you're kind of barking up the wrong tree if you're, if you're asking me to do them. So when we're talking about just general direction of a project, like in early stages, I think it'll be a, a good tool to be able to say like, if you don't see, something adjacent to that here it's probably something i'm not comfortable doing um so that, that's another i think that's another good attribute to having this site i love that idea of of easing some of the simplifying some of the conversations you might otherwise have because you never know you know a producer client that i work with as a manager we were talking about his website and um, i we were debating sort of you know do we put the biggest, most well-known records you've produced on there, or do we put everything? And he, he leaned toward everything with the idea that you never know which record someone's going to, you know, Oh, that was, that was the most important record to me. I love the way that record sounds that, 
you know, could trump something that you assume is the more obvious choice. And yeah, I've had the same thing as you know, as we often talk about the closest thing I have to you doing record artwork is I write a lot of bios for a lot of bands and that's dealing with a lot of the same cast of characters, sometimes the exact same. Sometimes I'm, you know, remember when you did the Queensryche record, I was doing the bio at the same time you were doing the, the artwork. And I had a similar thing where, you know, I, I redesigned my personal site in the last couple of weeks and I wanted a page that was just like, here's a list of every bio. There's just a list of bands for that exact same reason of when someone's questioning decision-making or experience or, or micromanaging or, or overthinking a choice I've made as a writer, just being able to say like, yeah, just take like, you know, <laughs> you, 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 I was probably recommended to you because you knew some, you know, I had done this and these one or two things, but just take a quick look. <laughs> maybe that, maybe that'll change the tone of the conversation. Hopefully just in turn just trust we're not it's not so much pride as it is trust like yeah it's being able to brag without doing it overtly which is what I, I like i've never been comfortable with with like really touting that stuff um neither of us ever wants to do the don't you know who i am in those situations yeah 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 it, of course and and there are some situations we'd prefer to let the the work speak for itself Right. And there are some situations where it's like you almost have to do that or else you're going to get kind of stomped on. Um, so you got to find a way to do it in a way that doesn't seem like you're, you know, super full of yourself. So I think this will help with that. I feel like that there's someone out there probably saying, what is the website you've been talking about this whole time? Um, it's just Ryan Clark record covers.com. And the, the, another fun element i think one of the things that actually kind of helped me actualize this thing is this fun idea that i had to kind of put them in a interesting sort of um categor categorization which was color coding them it, or at least trying to get as close as i could to color coding them so uh the navigation has more to do with the color or the the prominent color of the uh, album cover more than you know, what type of music or what year or whatever. Um, so it's, it's pretty fun to see like, a, you know, 30 to 50 like red covers together, you know, that kind of stuff. That's pretty fun to do. That's awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to carve it out and come back on No Prize from God. For sure. This was fun. Your, for your, your first episode continues to be the most popular, so. Nice. Let's see if we can beat it. Yeah, I was gonna say the uh, the the bar is high. That's awesome um, for this one. So yeah, hopefully hopefully this will be more of a more of an Aliens Terminator Two situation and not a Gremlins Two situation. <laughs> yeah, well, let's find out. It could be. It could be. Uh, what was the uh, what was the name of that band in the uh, late nineties from Seattle? who had the lowest selling, um, gosh, what are they called? They had the lowest selling um, sophomore record of all time. Uh, Weedus. Do you remember that? It was in a bunch of movies and stuff. So they had this major one hit wonder on their first album. And it sold sold probably probably platinum or at least gold. And then this their, their second record sold like, 5,000 copies or something. It was just like the difference was just astronomical. So we'll see if it does that.
the difference between Michael J. Fox's Teen Wolf and Jason Bateman's Teen Wolf 2. <laughs> T-O-O. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks. And uh, yeah, unlike, unlike every other guest, even the ones that I've known a long time and am friends with, I will actually be talking to you <laughs> probably the same day we recorded this. So, Yeah, for sure. Uh, but thanks, man. Yeah.